listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles if you have them with you or you bring them up on your phone to Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 will be our, our text this morning. In entering that text, I want to pull back and just maybe offer an illustration because I think Paul is doing something very specific here, very unique. There's a transition from chapter 4 to chapter 5. So in the early 80s, Dick Rutan and Jenna Yeager uh, decided to start this quest. And what they were going to do is they were going to build their own airplane and be the first to have a trans-world flight on one tank of gas. And they had to design this plane. They worked together. The cost was about $2 million. And they had businesses that were helping donate just to see if this was even feasible or possible. They built the plane out of plastic and paper, essentially, a two-person cockpit. And they were in their airplane for, it was called the Voyager, for nine days, 44 hours, and two minutes. They traveled all the way around the world, 25,012 miles, and landed in California. Mission accomplished. They did what they wanted to do, and they had traveled further than anyone had ever traveled in uh, one tank of gas as they flew around the world, 25,012 miles. Paul is doing something similar here this morning, but he's telling us that as though that feat of traveling around the world is significant in over 25,000 miles, it's by no means the longest distance in the world. The longest distance in the world is 15 inches from our heads to our hearts. That's where Paul goes this morning. It's exactly what Paul is attempting to do in helping us make the transition from the understanding of who he's called us to be and and the reality of the gift that we've received through faith in Christ, this, this word that we've used numerous times, justification, meaning that through the actions of God, we've been made right with him. But there's a shift, and that shift is unbelievably significant because what he's doing now is transitioning away from just understanding what our position is before God to help us understand how the reality of God's work lives itself out on street level. If grace, he would say, isn't sufficient for everything, then it's sufficient for nothing. Here's what he's really driving us to, is that the the gospel, certainly the truth of Jesus' death burial and resurrection has secured for us an initial relationship with the God of the universe. Praise be to God that that is actually an an intimate relationship has been initiated by the God of the universe and and we are now standing right with God. We're able to experience a relationship with God forever. But it's not just about eternity and a hope for a future. What Paul's contention is in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, is that truth of our reality and our experience of having a relationship with God and knowing that our eternity is secure 
makes a difference in absolutely every second and moment of life. What he wants to do is help us understand the impact of that relationship with Jesus Christ on street level, in the conflicts that we have with our loved ones, in the challenges that we have at work, in the frustrations that we have with neighbors and the concerns that we have with hidden sin in our own hearts and the, the unvoiced struggles that you and I live on a daily basis. And even for many of us here or some of us here who might not yet be convinced of the truth of who Jesus Christ is and his work on your behalf, Romans 5, 1 through 11 will at least at a very bare minimum clarify for you what Christianity is all about. And I mean that in contrast to maybe what you've been told Christianity is all about. This is really categorically Paul's communication about the essence of how the Christian life lives and breathes. This is the essence of the truth of Christianity, but there's a a transference or a transition from just knowing the truth of God's word to understanding how the truth of God and the reality of the gospel lives itself out in our daily lives. What significance does the death, burial, and resurrection in our standing with God that we are made right, we were his kids, we are now part of his family, what difference really, honestly, does that make in the decisions that you and I make on a daily basis and how we love our spouses or care for our kids in the words we say to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the corners of our heart what places that we have sectioned off that no one knows about but ourselves and God what real impact does the truth of Jesus Christ really have this is the essence of what Paul is getting at in the heart of Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. And I think the contention really is, is if grace isn't sufficient for everything, it's sufficient for nothing. It's not just that your eternity has been secured, and I think the Bible is abundantly clear, and I think sometimes we've narrowed our view of the impact of our salvation and intimacy with Christ to just thinking about heaven. But if you, if you look at John 10.10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. God did not just save you for heaven. He saved you so that you could have life for eternity, not just eternal life. That's the distinction that Paul makes in Romans chapter 5. And he uses a word that is consistent and something that we would always think as we read the scriptures that it should sort of arrest our attention. He says, therefore... He wants us to know that there's an impact of verses of the the first four chapters of the book of Romans of clarifying the truth of who Jesus is and the essence of what it means to to know the active pursuing of God and the the holiness of God and his wrath against sin and, and the reality that you and I those who are apart from Christ stand as enemies to God. It's not that that there's any sense that there's a neutrality that exists. In the context of the universe as a whole, as we think about the holiness and the perfection of God and we think of humanity, there's no Sweden. There's no one neutral. We come into this world with the realization that we are fundamentally in opposition. 
the battlefields of our heart that exist in the context of our entrance into the world, we understand that there is not perfection that lives and breathes inside of us. We find ourselves consciously and unconsciously in opposition to the God of the universe. The description that the Bible gives us is we are enemies of God. And yet in the battlefield of the human soul, God actively pursues and does what needs to be done to bridge the gap so that we can move from enemies to forever family. And that gap is absolutely life-altering. Look with me, if you will, in Romans chapter 5, because I want you to hear these words over again. Ricky did a great job reading them, and I want them to rest on us this morning. There's, I think, three sections in this small portion of Scripture. And I think verse 1 and 2 give us the indication, the essence, that if grace is not good for everything, then it's not good for anything. That ultimately, if we understand the impact of God's grace, the fullness of what God is doing impacts every single area of our life. And I think he says as much in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified or made right by faith, and like Jared said, it's always been about faith last week, here's what he says. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace doesn't mean that once you come to faith in Christ, everything is awesome. Because that's not true. That's not where you live. That's not where you and I live and breathe. What he's saying is that the gap in the battlefield of the human soul has been bridged by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that Christ himself has come down as the God-man entered into this world, lived, breathed, died, and suffered on our behalf so that the sin that we have done, that he did not do, he took upon himself. And in so doing, gave us the ability through faith to experience an intimate, eternal relationship with God. That that, that that now the reality of the fact that we were once enemies, we have been brought near. This is verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So here's the significance. He's not only saying that grace is sufficient for salvation, he's saying that grace is also sufficient for life. He tells us now that not only also have we been given grace so that we could deal with the enmity and the fact that we were enemies of the God of the universe, but that now that we've been justified, we've been made right with God. We have a grace in which we can stand. He's talking about life. He's talking about where you live at this moment. He's locating the gospel in your experience right now. And you can choose whatever experience you want, but I know if you're anything like me, there are things inside of your mind and areas of your heart that you know have produced challenges, doubts, insecurities, fears, and anxiety. There's something inside of your life and mine where we would say, this just isn't working. Things are not coming together like I thought they would. I expected that as I prayed the prayers that I've prayed and in the stillness of my own heart, I've asked God, can you please move in some way in something to happen where I can see the fullness of your work, something tangible that I can hold on to? And we felt like God has been silent. (laughs) Paul tells us here as he's already answered that prayer, you want something to hold on to? Hold on to Christ. Hold on to grace. 
the reality of the sufficiency and the intimacy of Jesus Christ and the knowledge that he has now given us access. So he tells us entrance, ability. Hebrews even tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with what? Boldness. To receive what? Mercy and help. When? In our time of need. That's where we live and breathe. Like in all of those utterly discouraging, dismantling moments of our life, the invitation is laid out to us. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have access. And that access is to the very place that you desperately need. What? Grace, mercy, help in your time of need. So what is he telling us? Need, understood biblically, draws us to Jesus, draws us to intimacy with God. Need, understood unbiblically, draws us away from God, makes us feel discouraged that God isn't acting on our behalf. Why? Because our version of our life is different than God's. It happens all the time. We think that there are things that should happen, and God is using Paul to the church at Rome to compete against this idea that any aspect of your relationship with God that has a transactional piece to it is not the truth of the Scriptures. When I mean transaction, you know what I mean, right? You do this, you get this. You buy this, you get this in return. You behave well enough, you get these things in return. And what happens is when we do the right things, and what happens when the right things don't end up happening? We grow discouraged in our relationship with God. Verses 1 and 2 of Romans 5, I think, is this shift. And here's what happens. The first four chapters of the book of Romans is all about faith. 33 times, 33 times, Paul uses that word. Why? Because like Jared said, it's always been about faith. And what does it mean? Faith, confidence, a level of trust in that what God says is actually an accurate assessment of the way things operate, how things work, the way the world has been designed, the functional reality of God's holiness and our imperfections, all of the diagnosis of the human condition is accurate, true, and real. And we place our faith, our confidence in knowing that that's exactly what God has said. 24 times in Romans 5 through Romans 8, Paul uses the term life. Faith only shows up twice. <laughs> so here's the shift. This is faith living itself out on street level. This is where you and I live and breathe. Paul is planting the gospel. He's locating it. He's, he's moving the gospel into the neighborhood of your soul. And he's saying, here, let's find a way to understand the fullness of how the gospel produces, provides, and is sufficient for everything, everywhere, at all times, no matter what. What's at stake in Romans 5, 1 through 11, is the sufficiency of the gospel with where we live and breathe. And I love what Paul's going to do here, because he is unequivocally and unashamedly ready to take on the most difficult task. Verses 1 and 2, I think this is what he says. Justification makes once enemies forever family. Justification, being made right with God, makes once enemies forever family. There is no greater universal gap between God and man than that one. The spectrum is infinite. 
from enemies to forever family is mind-boggling if we just allowed ourselves to sit in the significance of what that means. Now what Paul's going to do in verses 3 and following is deal with things that threaten that. (laughs) Areas that threaten that truth. And if you were thinking in and of yourself, and you don't have to speak out loud, but just process it in your mind, what would be some of the greatest threats that you can imagine to the sense and the knowledge, the feeling and the truth, to, to make the largest distance in the world overcome, the 15 inches from our head to our heart, what would threaten the impact of that settling in and anchoring our lives no matter what comes? Well, Paul's going to tell us, suffering. Suffering is one of those areas that calls into question the goodness of God. At least it has for me. There's areas in my life and things that I've been a part of where I've looked at myself and I've prayed those prayers and I've asked, God, there is no way you can be doing what you're doing and still feel like you're good. I've called into question the character of God in the moments of suffering. And yet I think Paul spells it out even more in a deeper way, parses it out in a more significant, practical way in terms of how suffering threatens our understanding of us being part of God's forever family. Let's look together and let the word speak for itself. Verses 3 through 5 say this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I think what Paul is communicating here is that our identity has been defined and determined by God himself. That that God authors and offers the definition of who we are and our identity. So let's, let's just play this out just a little bit. When we think of suffering and the greatest challenges that you and I face, one of the challenges that ends up becoming some of those areas that target our soul and our heart and our confidence that we are God's forever family is that it competes against our identity. We begin to wonder if God is good. We call into question the experiences that we're having and the feelings that we're feeling. And and what we end up doing is we elevate those feelings to the place of feeling like they get to determine who we are, what we think, and what others think about us. Suffering can and does often become an identity. We've all said it. Often when we talk about some areas of our story, if we've all gone through or any one of us have gone through just incredible catastrophic human suffering, Often, we lead with that part of our story. This is who I am. I've been a drug addict, or I've been divorced, or I've done this, or I am this. And you can hear the vocabulary. It seems as though it becomes an identity statement that I relate with the world, and the world relates with me based on my sin and failure. Here's what Paul says. There's a difference between recognizing the failures and the brokennesses and the suffering that we've experienced or are experiencing and have it be an identity or have it be just a part of our testimony. And that's where the journey 
moves us to, because that's what Paul tells us, right? He, he gives us this sort of succession of what happens in the midst of suffering. He tells us biblical suffering gives us a lens to view what's going on, and he gives us that succession. He said, we rejoice in our sufferings, and we'll get there in just a second, but he says, here's what you need to know of what happens in the context of suffering through the lenses of the gospel as the gospel works itself out on street level, the sufficiency of God's grace for the moment that you and I are living now, here's what happens. Suffering produces endurance. That there's a sense in which biblical spiritual stamina is developed as we walk out fighting and wrestling with our own emotions as we plant the truth of the sufficiency of God's involvement in our life right now. Verse 2, right? God is not just sufficient to provide salvation for us, but this is a grace that you what? Stand in. Stand. Like you are becoming and growing into this place where you're realizing that everything that is being assaulted against you and the challenges that you face in the context of your life and my life, all of those things that are assaulting our minds, our hearts, our lives, everything around us. We find ourselves saying, God, I don't have the strength, and he's going to go that next. He said, I'm going to stand in the grace that I know to be true. I'm no longer your enemy, but I'm your forever family. That somehow, in some way, there is loving actions of a loving God being directed towards me that I can't see right now. There is an intentionality of the God of the universe who is dispensing the resources of heaven to reassure me that all I need is him. That's where the challenge comes in. That spiritual stamina begins to realize and help us trust or come to the conclusion that at the end of the day, part of the challenges of suffering is we come to the realization that we're trusting other things above God, that we're valuing something some outcome. And I think that's why the transition happens. He's saying suffering, we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces what? You can say it. You read it. It's right there in the Bible. (laughs) Right. What does that mean? It means your life is being changed. That there are elements of our own affections and our own desires that have been shifted away from the fullness of what we've given to God or what God has given to us towards other things, that there are areas in our heart that no matter how difficult the suffering is, we say, okay, I'm going to stand in this grace, and I'm going to believe that God is working, that I am no longer an enemy, but I am forever family, and as forever family, God is doing something surgical, tactical, and unique in my heart. Here's what we have to confess if we get to stage two, stage two, the next step as God produces those things in suffering, we have to come to the conclusion that we need change. Surprisingly, as much as I love you and respect every single one of you, not one of us is perfect. There's work that needs to be done, FYI, and all of us, myself included. But if suffering produces spiritual stamina, endurance, and endurance as you stand and convinced that that longest distance, that 15 inches from head to the heart becomes something where God is reassuring and reinforcing his presence in your life and our appetites for him are growing at the expense of other things and we're longing for more of him and we're trusting and we're seeing there's this grace in which we stand. There's aspects of our character that begin to change. And character produces really awesome people. <laughs> if only, right? That's not what it says. It's like 
Paul does this unique thing in this section of Romans is he's speaking to the Roman church and there's conflict within the church. They all have their own challenges they're navigating. There's tons of uncertainty. They're convinced that, that God has made them right through, the, through faith in Jesus Christ and that he's, he, he has grace enough for every moment and every time. And he's saying, he, he's saying um, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Why? Like, How? Is that even the reality of the outcome of suffering? I think Paul is going to give us an indication of that, but I think what Paul is communicating is that the reason that there's hope is because our identity is so secure in the reality of who we are as God's forever family and that God's grace is sufficient for everything before us that our hope begins to um, grow in its expectation that there's no limit to the amazing work that God can do not only this side of eternity, but in eternity. There's something more that we have yet to see. And as we stand, and hopefully everyone that was here last week did the homework that Jared had laid out before you to just wrestle with the truth of these things, but here's what ends up being produced. You become hopeful that the sufficiency of the gospel is enough for you right now. Where you live and breathe, where you sit, where you work, where you sleep, where you wake, the schools that you go to, the challenges that you face, the uncertainty of life, the doctor's appointments, doctor's offices, and waiting rooms. Hope is a result because we believe that even in the worst moments of life, not only is God bigger, but he's sufficient in those moments. That he's not just in truth. He doesn't have to be invited in. He's already there. Suffering reminds us of our hope. Suffering reminds us that we have a need and a power that is outside of us at work in and through us. And I love what Hebrews tells us. He says, he gives us this description of angels, and he tells us angels are what? Ministering spirits sent to those who have inherited salvation. (laughs) The reason, the image that I get as I think about that is that God, on behalf of his glory and his family, is dispensing the resources of heaven on his behalf and yours. That somehow there's this marriage between your suffering and the glory of God that is producing endurance, character, and hope in the most amazing of ways. And at the end of the day, what do we get to? We get to say there's no way that what happened could have happened outside of the amazing work of God. I don't have the strength to pull it off. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't think my way out of the box. But that's okay, because I know that I have God doing a work inside of me in such a way that the suffering that I experience now is not my identity. It's something that God is doing and producing in and through me for his glory and for the development of my hope. I think that that's one of the greatest things that's assaulted in the life that we live and the suffering we face. Hope is the first casualty of suffering, is it not? We want to have it. We fight for it. We try and give it to to one another. But the longer the suffering goes on, the less hope we have that anything's going to change. And again, the goal is God is changing. He is doing something bigger than we can see in this moment. But he's producing it, and our desire is to trust his goodness and his character. So he's going to come back around. And here are two things that I think are important before I get there. When I talk about suffering, I think there's two realities that we have to face, the human reality and divine reality or the God reality. 
Here's the human reality as we approach suffering. Suffering threatens to define us because insecurity plagues us. We wonder where we stand with God. As we, stu- as we suffer and we struggle even for a long term, we wonder how God feels about us. And here's the unique thing that happens as we suffer in the flesh and we challenge ourselves with the things that happen. When we've been wounded or hurt or there are things that we're insecure about and struggle, we look for two things. We look for allies and we look for targets. It's just what our heart does. We want people to be on our side and we want to find someone to blame. And in the worst moments, God's the person we blame. That's the human way in which we function. Here's the divine reality. Struggles don't threaten peace with God. They assure us of his presence in it. Suffering assures us that God is having his gaze and working in and through us in the worst moments of life. That word that God gives us in the New Testament, that God will never leave us or forsake us, is not just a salvific claim about eternity. It's a present claim about the reality that God has never left you alone. That doesn't mean you haven't felt alone. It doesn't mean you haven't been uncertain about God's presence. It doesn't mean that you haven't felt silent, silence from God or wondering or doubted. You look through the book of Psalms and how frequently these writers have just poured out their hearts to God and be like, where the heck are you? Like, do you even see what's going on? And, and God consistently and reassuredly and just in overwhelming ways communicates to them that he's always been there and is working in ways beyond what we can see. And so here's what happens as he finishes up verses 6 through 11. I think the third section gives us a, an indication of not only helping us understand a, a bigger picture of God, but the presence of God where we live and breathe right now. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love towards us that while we were still sinners, while we were active enemies, while we were cosmic villains, why there was nothing that we not only could do to earn God's favor, but we were dramatically and consistently working in opposition to it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So I think Paul begins to capture this whole thing together and begin to communicate to us is that Christ is sufficient for every moment in life, that grace is where we stand. Villains have become forever family. And so recognizing our understanding and having a a scope of the brokenness of our own lives and the substance of our own heart, that we were active enemies against God, that our sin had put us in a place where we're choosing not just to do our own thing, but defy the holy presence of God, that we were actively apart from him in the process of those things at the right time, Paul says. 
Christ died for the ungodly. How does that live and breathe with where we sit, where we live? I think one thing it tells us is that there is no one, ourselves included, that are too far from the reach of God's grace. That if all of us were enemies of God and been made forever family, then the entire world, regardless of where they come from, regardless of the gravity of their brokenness, there is not one who has done too much to not receive the reach of God's grace. That invitation, as much as it's for them, is for us. And in so doing, we realize that God can transform the most wicked amongst us, myself included, to be that which once was an enemy to be forever family. Grace isn't sufficient for all of it. It's sufficient for none of it. We don't come to faith in Jesus Christ for fire insurance. (laughs) I just don't want to go to hell. God wants our hearts. And that transition of realizing that God is drawing us into an intimate, real, vibrant relationship with Him and that every moment of life, His grace is sufficient and we are being changed. And one of those instruments of change is what? Challenges, a hardship. (laughs) We have a hard time seeing the work of God in the hardest moments of life. But what we trust is that God is producing things, that suffering produces spiritual stamina, and spiritual stamina produces character. Character produces hope. And what happens with hope? Doesn't disappoint. Never. God will carry through his plans on behalf of his glory and for his people because he is that good. I'm going to finish with a quote from one of my favorite theologians, Iron Mike Tyson. <laughs> just kidding. He is a theologian. Everybody's a theologian. But here's what he says. In processing just life as a whole, Mike Tyson once said, not everyone who wants to fight you is your enemy and not everyone who wants to help you is your friend. How much have we felt that in life? Um, Disappointed with the actions of others, and he just gives a great scope of looking back on his life and realizing sometimes it's hard to tell. Except with the gospel. You never have to be uncertain in where you stand with God. You never have to doubt the rich love that God has for you and the work that he's doing on your behalf saving the fact that you have faith and trust and the confidence of his character and what he's done in his work on the cross. You never have to wonder where you stand when you stand in grace. Let's pray. Father, you have described yourself as rich in mercy. You are the originator of the reality of what that is. You are merciful and gracious. You define those terms, that grace is Christ Jesus at work within us. It's not a feeling, it's a person. And so, Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, as Romans tells us, has been poured out inside of us. Would you continue to fan and to flame the appetite for you? Would you compete against those false narratives that somehow our circumstances define our identity? Would we find our hope and our identity in you and you alone? Lord, and I just ask even this morning, just at a very bare minimum, you would help reassure us and make that transition of those 15 inches from our head to our heart that we never have to know 
or never have to question, we never have to doubt how you feel about your kids. For your glory and for our good, we ask these things in Jesus' name.